0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Apparently, I am only fairly eager to get back into the pulpit. Not just eager, right? Wesley's putting words in my mouth. I am very eager. I love teaching. I look forward to teaching every Sunday. Not every Sunday, but most Sundays I I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. So I am eager. I'm eager to tell you about something that happened two weeks ago while I was on vacation. Uh, because we've, we're, on, we're on the final stretch of our shift campaign, the, the building, you see that everything's kind of coming together, which is exciting. Um, and I'm not the general contractor, but I've kind of served as the point person and the project manager for the whole thing. And as we're furnishing the facility, uh, the FedEx guy and UPS guy, we're on a first-name basis. We've got delivery men coming almost every day, filling this place up, making it look pretty and uh, more functional. And so uh, our interior decorator... Ordered uh, a couple of bookshelves for our offices, and as usual, most things with this project, they were back ordered for a long time, and then scheduled to come at a very ino- inopportune time while I was on vacation. So I get a call at 7:45 in the morning, and I'm on vacation, so I'm still in bed in my jammies, and uh, I get informed that there are delivery men that have been outside of our facility for the last 40 minutes and are kind of grumpy. They want in to deliver the stuff, so I come on over, and uh, again sort of grumpy, that I have to come in and help these guys or whatever. It's like, all right, I'll get in, get out, be no problem. We'll just tell them where to put the stuff, drop it, we'll deal with it later. Well, when I got here, apparently, we paid not just for them to ship the stuff and deliver it, but also to install it, (laughs) which... I'll be honest, is nice because it means I don't have to do it or get a volunteer team to do it. So I was like, okay, that's fine, but I guess I'm going to be here for a minute because this ain't, this ain't going to happen fast. So I'm committed in my head. I'm just going to go hunker down in my office, let them do their thing. Let's make this as short as possible. Get in, get out. Let me get back to my family, back to my vacation. So I'm in my office. They're making their rounds. They finally get to my office and start putting these bookshelves together. And uh, i I'll, I'll confess. I am not being a very good person or a very good pastor at this point. (laughs) I've got my office turned to them, my office chair turned away from them. I'm kind of trying to just ignore them, like, you guys just do your thing, get out of here, let me get back, right? And uh, one of the gentlemen, he says, so, you guys sing church music here? And I thought, (laughs) Jesus, you... Right? And I begin to have an argument with the Lord in my head, which, if you've ever argued with the Lord in your head, it's not like an audible voice, but like, you know Jesus enough. You spend enough time with him that, like, this conversation of of my thoughts and God's thoughts are kind of going back and forth. This guy has clearly opened the door for a spiritual conversation. I'm like, Lord, I don't, uh, I'm off. I I don't want, no. (laughs) I'm out. Like, I just know. Well, as arguments with the Lord go, I lost? It's like, yes, we do sing church songs here. <laughs> and in, in sort of defiance to the Lord, I'm like, I'm not going to make this a winsome thing. I'm just going to get into it, right? It's like, so are you a Christian then? We're just going to cut right to the chase. So do you believe in Jesus? Well, actually, sort of. I'm a Muslim. So they really, tell me about that. Tell me about that. So, Mr. Muhammad Amin was his name. He's an Arab- Arabic fellow, really nice. Um, he proceeds to tell me that, he said, actually, you and I, we are brothers, because we both, we both like Jesus. He was a great prophet. I said, well, Amin, actually, we, we're, I, we're brothers in the sense that we're both created in the image of God. Absolutely. I can embrace that. But I said, I think you and I think pretty differently about who Jesus said that he was. He said, what do you mean? And I shared with him something that I've shared with quite a few people over the years from a guy named C.S. Lewis, an author. It's phenomenal. It's a quote, and I'll, I'll butcher it a little bit. But essentially he says that when we're dealing with the person of Jesus... If we acknowledge that Jesus claimed to be God, which he does all throughout the New Testament, and the promises and prophecies of God in the Old Testament make similar statements. If a man shows up on the scene, Lewis says, and claims to be God, he can only be one of three things. He is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is the Lord of the universe. He is who he claimed to be. And so I shared that with Muhammad Amin. I shared with him, I said, are you familiar with, with who Jesus claimed to be? Would you agree that if, if someone showed up, if a man showed up and he says, I'm God, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree he has to either be a liar, he has to be either be a crazy person, or he is who he says. But what he can't be is just a good person. He can't just be a good teacher, or as you said, he can't just be a really good prophet that we can admire. He has to be one of those three things. And so I invited him to do what I'm going to invite all of you to do over the next six weeks with me. Consider the claims of Jesus. This is a question that each and every one of us must answer in our lives. Who was Jesus? As we move from our season of Advent, which we're just coming out of, on the church calendar, we'll move into a new season on the church calendar called Epiphany. Now, I had to look this up because, as, as I told you all, I didn't grow up in a liturgical church, and so some of the more liturgical things were, were in a, a series I've called Enriching Tradition, where we're going through the church calendar, which is kind of the, the old traditional calendar and different seasons of ordinary time and Advent and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and then the time of Pentecost. We're going through that, and so we're moving into what is known as Epiphany. I had to look this up. It's a Greek word which essentially means appearance or manifestation. So if we're moving out of the season of Advent where we're waiting expectantly for the Lord to arrive and make good on his promise, which he did during the Christmas season, now that he is here, he was born, and we're moving into his ministry, the time of Epiphany is when Christ is manifested to the Gentiles. He's made known to them. His identity is progressively being made known to the world. And it starts with the visit from the Magi to baby or toddler Jesus, I guess we could say. It also starts with the baptism of Jesus by John. Again, you can think of this season as the time that the glory and identity of Jesus is being revealed. It's a time where we answer the question, who was Jesus? What did he do? And consequently, how should we all respond to him? These are the exact questions that I'd like to answer with you all during this series. We're going to primarily do this through the Gospel of John. There'll be a few other Gospel texts sprinkled in there. We'll follow the Revised Common Lectionary supplying our text. As we move through Mark, hopefully, did I say John? I meant Mark. We'll be in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a great Gospel to use because his primary goal in writing is to answer these two questions. Who was Jesus and how should we respond To him. So we'll read along, and over the next few weeks in Mark, you'll discover that Mark is in a hurry to answer these questions. You'll hear words like immediately, or in our text today, he'll say, at once, Jesus did this, or immediately, Jesus did that. Mark hurries through Jesus' life and ministry, and quickly we will discover together that the Messiah, who we've all been waiting for, he's here, but he is a man of mystery. There are many things that that happen in his life that catch us off guard. In a lot of ways, we'll discover that Jesus is just as powerful, perhaps more powerful, than any of us thought or imagined. But how he chooses to use his power is mysterious. It's foreign. It's different than any of us would think. Rather than using his power and his majesty for selfish gain or political ends, He instead takes the path of suffering and death in service and submission to his Father's will, which again will begin in him being baptized, as we'll read in just a second. Time and time again throughout this series, we will see Jesus' power displayed only then to see him kind of downplay it and to defer to his Father's will rather than his own as he navigates through his life and ministry. Which before we get into the text, I I have to make a point of application here in thinking about how Jesus constantly deferred to the will of the Father and chose suffering rather than make his own way. I want you to think about this before we read our text. Jesus Christ was the most powerful and glorious person to ever walk on this earth. And every time he's confronted with a pathway forward in his life, he does not choose his own truth or his own way forward. He does not decide for himself what he should do or determine for himself what he thinks is acceptable or what he thinks is going to make him the most happy and then just go with that, right? He doesn't say, well, this is what makes me happy and so I'm sure God just, he's, he's on board with it, right? He's not in the driver's seat. No, Christ allowed God to be God, and to fulfill all righteousness, he obeys his Father's will. I realize there are many things in culture right now encouraging you, encouraging me, to live our own truth for the sake of our happiness. I put that in quotes because it's not actually the path to happiness we've been lied to. There are many things in culture right now encouraging us to live our own truth for the sake of our happiness. We're encouraged every day to follow our hearts, be true to ourselves. And the one thing, or one of the things I want you to see this morning, is that the way of Jesus could not be more countercultural to that. Jesus was the only person who had the right and ability to make decisions for himself about how to live and about how to decide what was acceptable and choose in, 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 in uh, concerning deciding his identity and lifestyle choices. But even he did not go down that path. He had the the power of Almighty God. And the ability to live his own truth in a way that was unique to him alone. And yet, he does not do so. Even Jesus, God with flesh on, submitted his life, his lifestyle, his sexuality, his identity to God the Father. Even Jesus, God in the flesh, chose to submit himself to the Father's will. And before you just hear that and and think, yeah, okay, he was Jesus, and, and we gloss over it, I want to invite you to meditate, to turn that over in your mind for a second. What that means for Jesus to choose submission and obedience to the Father over choosing his own truth. This choice for Jesus, the choice to submit to the Father's will, included suffering worse than losing a child to death. This choice to submit to the Father's will included suffering that was worse than trying to love a wayward child. His choice to submit to the Father included suffering way worse than being called names or receiving a cancer diagnosis or getting passed over for a promotion or being fired Jesus chose to submit to the Father's will, which not only included torture and crucifixion, which it did, but much worse than even that, he submitted to the Father's will, which included God forsaking him, abandoning him, turning his face away from him, and pouring out an infinite wrath for the sins of humanity upon him. Now I realize we can't even begin to wrap our minds around what that would feel like. So I invite you right now, just for a moment, to go to the darkest place that you have ever been in your life. The time where you felt the most alone, abandoned by people that should love you but don't. Where you felt like like you've cried out to God countless times and it's falling on deaf ears. Go to that place. Think about how that felt and multiply that feeling times 100 billion. We're not even close. We're not even close. That church is what Christ said yes to in choosing not to live his own truth or make a way for himself, but to come under the will of the Father. And as a culture... We're not willing to submit to him our calendars, our viewing habits on television, our bank accounts and spending habits, our sexuality. I want to repeat to you the words of John the Baptist that we'll read in a minute and call us as a body, myself included, to the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of John, which is a baptism of repentance. It's a turning from sin, away from sin, to God for forgiveness. John says, loved ones. Jesus says, loved ones, repent. Turn from your sins. Submit to the Father's will and his good designs and be saved. Experience joy and happiness. Submit to the Father's words take his way in faith like Jesus. And because Jesus fulfills all righteousness, you and I can too. Now, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. How about we actually spend a little time reading the text, right? Let's do that. We could begin, you can turn to Mark as, as you're getting there, I'll tell you that we could begin with the rival of the Magi, to begin Christ's ministry, which as you're turning to Mark, isn't that a a remarkable thing the magi the story of the magi three stargazers think of like jack Horkheimer and two of his buddies if you don't know who jack is google him right those of us who grew up on pbs know who he is the stargazer jack Horkheimer, right we got three three stargazers three pagan magicians people that look at the astrology and all of that stuff right They're looking up into the sky. They don't know God, but they know there's a creator that stands behind the universe. And they see he's put his calling card up in the sky and his son has been born. And so they follow that and they bring gifts fit for a king. Thousands of dollars to this child because of a star in the sky. It's amazing. It's mysterious. We could start there. But Mark doesn't. He skips over that to another majestic and mysterious encounter surrounding this person of Jesus. We find Jesus in the desert getting baptized. In Mark 1, starting in verse 4, let's read it together from the NIV. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you With the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and angels attended to him. If you were with us over the past few weeks, this passage will be familiar to you. We, I preached on it a little bit when we, we talked about Johnny B., John the Baptist. So we're not going to cover all the John the Baptist stuff again. You can go back if you weren't here for it and listen to it online. I do want to make the point that John's... Uh, Baptism and Jesus' gospel, again, is one of repentance. As we've already discussed, that means that we let God declare his designs, his will, his way. He's the author of marriage and of gender and sexuality and right and wrong and all of it. And our job is not to redefine those things, but it's in faith to trust and submit to what he says, to turn from our sin when we realize that we've stepped into it, not to press harder into it, to turn away from it. Again, in the season of Advent, we spent a lot of time unpacking the expectations that existed around the coming Messiah. Most people, if you were here on Christmas, we talked about this, most people expected an earthly or political ruler. And the arrival of Jesus, in some ways, is what people would have expected, especially the angelic announcement, right? A lot of pomp and circumstance, That was expected, but in a lot of other ways, the arrival of Jesus was quite mysterious and unexpected, wasn't it? Who expected a baby? Who expected a baby born in a barn to poor parents to some no-name town like Deschler or Melinta or Florida or, let's be honest, Napoleon or Liberty Center? Right? Who expected that? Indeed, there were a lot of expectations surrounding the Messiah some of which were met, others which were not, others which were quite mysterious, even to Jesus' own mother. If you read the beginning of Luke, there are several places where we see mysterious things happening around this child. And Luke tells us, Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart because they were mysterious. They were confusing. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about being Mary and having, having a child in a barn with animals around. Not in a hospital, not even in an inn or, or in a bathroom in the bathtub like some of the home birth stuff today, right? They're in a barn, a water trough. They're in a barn. You've heard from God that his son is going to be born of you through an immaculate conception. And your child, God's child, is born in a barn. To so top matters off, shepherds show up and let you know that God just sent a singing telegram with the entire host of heaven to announce the birth of this child, right? Like, hey, we just got a singing telegram? All these angelic deeds are... Uh, if, if I were Mary, I'm probably grumbling at this point. Are you kidding me? God you can send a singing telegram of the army of heaven to announce the birth of this kid, but you couldn't open a room at the inn? (laughs) For real? Mary doesn't do that. Perhaps she's confused by it. She doesn't complain or grumble. She ponders what the Lord does. These mysteries. She treasures them. Who could this child be? With such a lowly birth, but also with heavenly declarations surrounding him. Who is this king? See, thousands of years of Jewish history and prophecy is feeding into the legend of who this Messiah will be that will deliver his people and set them free. Which is why... When Mark clues us in to his gospel in Mark 1, if you remember back when we read it a couple weeks ago, verse 1, he says, The beginning, I'm about to tell you, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, who was promised, who was prophesied about. Here he is, people. Like, everybody's like, all right, all of these expectations. Here he is, the descendant of King David. You remember him? He was awesome. His great, 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 great grandson is here. It's a new age. He's on the scene. All of that expectation, all of the political stuff, and the kingship, and all of it. Which is why it's so striking at what Mark says next. Here's the beginning, right, the origin story of the legend, of the Messiah, of the world, and of Israel. Verse 4. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John. Church, if you were going to make this stuff up and actually like write a legend or write a story about an important person, this is not how you would write it, Right? If you're familiar with the Bible, you might recall that when one of Jesus' early disciples learns that he's from Nazareth, Nathanael, he scoffs. What? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's the first words out of his mouth. Right? Why is that? Because Nathanael is like me and like all of you. Important people come from important places like New York City and Boston or Harvard, right? Important people don't come from backwater, backwoods, flyover states. Can anything good come from Napoleon? Can anything good come from Nazareth? This is quite mysterious. The king of the Jews, the king of all humanity, his hometown is a hole in the wall? Who is this king? Could he truly actually be the promised one from Nazareth? Can anything good come from that dump? This is how people think, church. I know what some of you are thinking. It's not just how the people on the coasts think, right? It's how we all think. We look down on people or we look up to people based on things like where they grew up on if we know their family and what we know about their family or how much money they have or where they went to school and how many degrees they have behind their name. We all do this. And here's what I want you to hear this morning. I've got some good news for you. The God of heaven does not operate like you and I do. If you've seen The Chosen, there's a line in The Chosen that they've made into a t-shirt. A slogan, because Jesus says it. The actor who plays Jesus says it a couple times, and some of the disciples say it often. It's not scripture, but it does emphasize a theme of scripture. Get used to different. Get used to dis- different. Again, that that quote is is not a verse in the Bible, but it's sort of a paraphrase of something that the Apostle Paul turned into kind of a maxim after looking throughout church history and the history of of all the people and, and looking at how God does things. He records it for us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, he says, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Here's my point. God does not use people because of their gifts or strengths. Nor does your past scare him. Friends, it's not about what we do. God does not choose to work through people because of where we went to school or how strong or how put together we are, nor does He refuse to work through people because of how weak or sin riddled our lives are. God most often chooses to work through weak people who are willing to submit to His will. He chooses to use the most unlikely. He uses the ones the, world's would, the world would write off because it shows off his grace and his glory and his power all the more. The fact that Jesus was born in a barn and his home is a no name Nazareth illustrates this truth. God embraces and works mightily through weakness. Which, can we all just agree for a minute? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I put on a good show, personally, that I'm strong and I got it all together. But I'll be honest, I think I'm like a lot of you. We, we, we fake it like we got it all together. But if you could enter into our thoughts, you would realize that we're just a bunch of scared little kids who don't actually really know much. And we're nervous and we're anxious and we're weak. God embraces us in our weakness. He can, he will, he does work through our weakness if we're willing to submit to his will. Before we move on to my next point, I want to take a second and remind you what, what does that mean, that God uses weak people? What does that mean for us, especially as a church family? Because God uses weak people, his churches are full of them, this one included. We often say we're not a perfect church, And, folks, we're not. We don't have it all together. We're not always super clean and polished. If I haven't disappointed you as your lead pastor, I'm not saying this that I desire to do so, but I will at some point because I'm not perfect and I got sin in my life and I'm weak. Each and every person sitting next to us, that's true of us as well. We're weak. We have sin in our life. We will disappoint one another. So while it's important to pursue Christ's likeness and good doctrine, it's important that we should do those things. We should try our best to stick to Scripture, to love Jesus, to look more like Jesus. I wanted to take a second to remind us this morning as we start off a new year that we're not always going to agree with one another 100%. We're not always going to see eye to eye on colors of walls, and all kinds of other things, right? Some things more important than that. We're going to disappoint each other. Many of us, myself included, are going to act less than mature at times, even though we know better. And we serve a God who can work through all of it, who chooses to work through all of it. So I want to encourage each and every one of you The next time you're upset with something that I did or said or that your brother and sister did or said or didn't do or didn't say, the next time you're disappointed or upset with someone who's just being weak here in our family, can I invite you to remember that God has grace for that. And so we should too. We should too. The fact that Jesus is from Nazareth is surprising. It reminds us that God works through weakness and in those willing to submit to his will. But that's not nearly as surprising as what we find Jesus doing out here in the desert. It's even more surprising. It's mysterious. Not only does he come from a no-name place, but Jesus begins his ministry by receiving the baptism of John, which John has told us is a baptism of repentance from sin. What in the world are we to make of this? If you grew up around church, or honestly, even if you didn't grow up around church, as my friend Muhammad told me, right? Most people think of Jesus as a really, 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 really good person. A sinless person. We're told in the scriptures that he was sinless. That's the right expectation to put on him. So why in the world do we find him out here in the desert receiving a baptism of repentance from sin? What is going on here? We don't read this in Mark. That's why it's good that we have other Gospels. Matthew expands this story a little bit for us, right? Matthew records the interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene. He's like, hey, I want you to baptize me. And Johnny B's like, cuz. They were cousins, right? That's what he called them. (laughs) Cuz. Cuz come on, man, I, I'm not even worried to stoop down and an entire sand. I'm not baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. He's arguing with Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. He's like, what is going on here? The, the leaders of the church, they need to be baptized. All the people, they need to be baptized. You, you do not need this. And Jesus responds to him in Matthew 3, verse 15. He, he says, Let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, we're told. Translation, God the Father wanted him to do it. And that was enough for Jesus. It was part of God's will that Jesus go through the same public identifying process that he would ask all of his followers to go through as well, and he says, yes, Lord, your will, not mine. Church, baptism has never been a religious hoop that you have to go through so that you can have your sins forgiven. It's never been that. It is a declaration of identity and faith. A public announcement to the world and to the heavenlies, the spiritual beings that exist in the heavenlies. It is an announcement, a publication, a banner through the sky that says who who our king is. This is my king. This is the God I serve. It's an act of submission in faith, an outward act of faith that is held internally And while baptism in and of itself does not save you or anyone else, it does very much please the Father. You can think of it in terms of a wedding ceremony, right? Those of you who have been married know that before you get married, you need to go to the courthouse. Why? Because the ceremony doesn't actually do anything. The license that is then signed and approved by the state is what makes you married, when you express faith in Jesus, that legal document, the adoption papers, the, the wedding license gets signed by the Holy Spirit. And in the courtroom of heaven, you are signed, sealed, delivered in Christ. Baptism is the ceremony. It's taking what's, what's true in heaven and making it public. Now, do you have to have a ceremony to get married? No. But you are depriving yourself of a whole lot of joy by not doing so. That's what baptism is. It's a public confession declaration of what is true because of the faith that you possess. This church is why we as a church choose to baptize believers and not babies. Because we believe that if you look through scripture, faith comes first, that's what saves us. And out of that faith then, we take that faith public in the form of baptism. Now, it's not something worth dividing over necessarily, but as we try to stick true to the scriptures, that's why we do things the way we do here. Because we think faith comes first, and then baptism is the publicizing of that faith after, if that makes sense. Jesus shows us this. He was baptized because it pleased God and was part of his plan. And then in Jesus' baptism, God does for Jesus what he promises to do for all of us. He publicly identifies him as a child in whom he's well-pleased. This happens. After it happens, we're told that as Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens tear open. Which I'm not entirely sure what that looks like, but the how here is less important than the what or the why. The heavens tear open and God speaks to Christ and to the crowd. This is my son, he says. With you, I am well pleased. And then we're told that the Spirit descends upon him, like the Spirit descends upon all of us when we express faith, descends upon him, but not how you would expect, right? We'd expect like a rushing wind or flames of fire descending. and my- The Spirit descends as a dove. Jesus is marked by the Spirit of peace. And then that same Spirit begins to direct his actions. We're told at once the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. It's quite an introduction, isn't it? To the Messiah. Full of mystery. Full of majesty. All at the same time. What does it mean for you and I? For one, God doesn't say, this is my prophet in whom I'm well pleased. He calls him his son. That's something that we'll unpack further as we work through Mark. What does that mean? Son as in family member? Son as in member of the Godhead? Son as in God with flesh on? Yes. Jesus is God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. He is God in a different person and form from the Holy Spirit and from the Father. That's something we must deal with. This pronouncement, and many others like it throughout the scripture, will not allow us to think of Jesus just as a good person, a good prophet, or a good teacher. He claimed to be more than that. And as Lewis said, he has to be one of three things because of that. He's a liar, he's a crazy man, or he's the Lord. And if he was who he declared himself to be, well then how, how, how should we respond to his claims? For this too, Jesus shows us. We respond with the faith of submission to the Father. And as we possess that faith individually and privately, we should take that faith public by being, ple- uh, by being baptized as a believer. Because it pleases the Lord. And then we strive to put that faith into practice. And as we do so, we remember that it doesn't matter where we're from what our strengths or weaknesses are, what our family thinks or what their reputation is. It doesn't matter what our past is. All that matters is that we believe Jesus enough to take him at his word and learn to say as he did to the father, not my will, Lord, but your will. Your will be done on me throughout this earth as it is in heaven. And I want you to hear this in closing you won't do this perfectly. You and I will fail. That's not what we're aiming for. That's not our target. But we will. Inevitably, we will fail. And when that happens, I want you to invite, i want to invite you to preach the gospel to yourself to remember that when we turn to the Father in faith, he does not see you nor your failures. No. Through your faith, Through your faith, he sees Jesus. The one for whom it is written, the heavens torn open and the Spirit descended upon him. The one for whom a voice from heaven declared, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. The one who submitted perfectly to the Father's will so as to fulfill all righteousness. Loved ones, Jesus did this for you so that when you fail to fulfill the righteous requirements of God, his actions and the faith you place in them will. Because of Jesus' obedience to the Father and to death, even death on a cross, there is power still today in his presence. There is power still today in his blood. There is power in his name when we cry out to him in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this mysterious, this majestic man, Christ, Jesus, your son. Thank you for sending him, for revealing him to us, for making it hard for us to to call him just a good teacher, a good prophet. I pray, Father, if those are here today who've never dealt with the claims of Christ, that this morning you would lift the veil from their eyes. You would illuminate the truth of who Jesus is. That they would encounter you, the person of Jesus this morning, in a saving way. And Father, as we turn to you in faith, if there's any here who've not yet been baptized as a believer, would you invite them to do so, not as some religious hoop, but as an act to go public with their faith and to experience the celebration of that faith together as a family and also the pleasure of your face smiling smiling down on them. I pray, Father, that you would help us all to grab a hold of the identity that is ours through that faith and baptism, that we would know and hear from you regularly, just as you said of Jesus and poured out your spirit on him, that we too would know the presence of peace by the power of your spirit. We too would know the identity that we have as a child of the king, a son or daughter in whom you are very well pleased. I pray, Father, that you would give us a faith that would want to tear off the roof to get to you, that would want to push through the crowd to get to you. And Father, when we do, may that faith in your son bring power for your glory and our joy we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.